Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. Uh, the show is Stand to Reason, and I'm kind of pumped right now. We just had uh, about three hours with some wonderful people from Norway. Who uh, we we had a team from Norway sponsored by the same folk. They came out last year, and uh, I don't know they're. Uh, spending a couple weeks here in the States, and they came by Christians who are uh, uh, committed to making a difference in their own country. We actually had some confusion where I where I was, uh, I don't know why this happened, many years ago when I was working at Hope Chapel, um, we were asking, where did Norwegians come from? And nobody could think of the word Norway. So somebody just said, I, I think it's Norwegia. So that was the, uh, okay, Norwegia. <laughs> that became the joke. But we had some real Norwegians here and had a fabulous time with them. And uh, actually, they're still hanging out, listening to the show a little bit here. Um, I can't, uh, I would be remiss without saying something about the Super Bowl, since la- Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday. And in case you're interested, which maybe you wouldn't, I was rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs. And, uh, of course, I didn't... Uh, I, I I didn't get my my I know, the bearded pieces give me thumbs down. Big San Francisco fan. I, I look at it, I, I I usually don't have a horse in the race. Okay, I just come and pick a team. Turned out my daughter was for San Francisco. I usually try to side with her, but uh, I like Patrick Mahomes. Um, this is his third uh, Super Bowl ring. He's only what twenty eight years old, and. He's got a long history ahead of him, and maybe he's going to beat Brady, uh, but he's just kind of fun to watch. But I will say this, and Brock Purdy did a great job. I think the only time—maybe I'm not correct. I think there was a, a part of the the game where the Chiefs were ahead three points or something. I, I don't know, but it was tight. And the first three quarters were boring, I think, because nothing was happening— why? Because the defense was so great on both sides. And I think Purdy did a great job. He stayed in the pocket because he had a fabulous offensive line that gave him great protection. He never seemed in trouble. And Mahomes was scrambling all over the place. He couldn't stay in the pocket, and he wasn't finding receivers because the secondary was doing such a great job, the defensive secondary. And so, in a way, when the defense is doing such a great job, it leaves you kind of wondering, well, when's this game going to start? Oh, and it started the fourth quarter, and then it got really interesting. And then it was come from behind in overtime to make, uh, as it turned out, to go for the Chiefs to go 75 yards without making a big mistake. If they didn't make a first down and keep moving down, if they fumbled the ball, if the ball was intercepted, it was over with because, because the— uh, the 49ers, of course, made that field goal three points up. And then with, what, four seconds left on the clock or six seconds or eight seconds, something negligible like that, Patrick Mahomes pitched one into the end zone and the game was over. And that was a fun ending, for me at least. A real heartbreak for 49ers fans. Anyway, so there you go. That's my uh, my uh, armchair quarterbacking stint here. Um I was watching. I, I don't. We don't have network TV, so the only way we can watch something is if I if I purchase a, a, a per subscription to some kind of sports thing. And the one I purchased for football, just because my daughter likes it, and I thought we'd watch some football together, is the uh, is actually a Canadian provider. 
So here I'm watching the Super Bowl, waiting to see these great Super Bowl commercials. And characteristically, it's the best commercials of the year. And I'm watching commercials for Tim Horton or McDonald's in Canada or uh, what? CTA, Can Canadian TV, whatever. <laughs> Boring commercials. Uh, but what it meant is I didn't get a chance to see the He Gets Us commercials, which I'm very interested in. I'm quite concerned about that campaign, and we've talked about this before. What is the message that's being communicated? In my view, um, it's not a good message. Do you know those commercials cost $7 million for 60 seconds? And when you do a very nicely produced, cleverly done, he gets us commercial, um, it costs you $7 million for just that one minute. You better make sure that your millions are being well spent. And uh, not only am I convinced they were not well spent, but I think that they actually did damage. Now, um, Natasha Crane has written on this in the past, and we had her on board a year ago when this campaign first started. She is not available today, so we're going to have to talk with her next week, and she'll give us the rundown then. So we will revisit that issue, all right, the the issue of the He Gets Us campaign, which I'm actually borderline stunned at the the particular Christians that have come out either somewhat neutral to affirmative or completely affirmative about this campaign. And we'll talk about why that's the case. And I'm sure many of you who are part of the Stand to Reason community and have learned a few things about, in a sense, reading between the lines about what is actually going on and things like that, have seen many of the things that we see. And we'll talk about that next week with Natasha Crane. <clears throat> so we're going to be doing, Amy, Amy we're doing a, an interview with Natasha off schedule, but it's going to be aired next week. Is that right? Will that be the Tuesday? Oh, the one that comes out Wednesday or the one that comes It'll be Wednesday. Okay, so that's that's when you'll have, have a shot at uh, Natasha's comments. I've already read her piece about this, and it might be on the Internet. Natasha Crane, C-R-A-I-N. And uh, just put, he gets us. He's, she's written two pieces about it. This was a follow-up to last year. They're both excellent and very even-handed, fair-minded. And she did her research, and her thinking is great. And um, I think she does a great job in <clears throat> clarifying the concerns that uh, we all share here at Stand to Reason, and many other Christian apologists see as well, though not all. So that'll come next week, or you can read the piece in the, me in the meantime. All right. So um, we have been getting some questions quite frequently, apparently, uh, about marriage licenses or marriage certificates per se. And it's not the concern at this point that these are licenses that are being given out for same-sex unions, um, thus verifying and justifying as equal to heterosexual unions, these same-sex unions that are now called marriages. They're not, but they're called that. By the way, they can only be called marriages if the word marriage has no meaning. And after Obergefell and two, the Supreme Court decision, 
the someone made the notation, made the observation rather, that all marriage is are names on a piece of paper. That's it. It does not represent anything meaningful anymore. Certainly not to culture. Because what matters to culture is a foundational family structure that marriages characteristically begin and provides the 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 basis for for every culture, not just Christian culture. What we're talking about here are not Christian rules about marriage, biblical standards about marriage, but the way reality is structured. You don't need to be a Christian or a Bible reader to know the way the world is. And this is why from forever, from the beginning of civilization, marriage has been a word to used to describe a particular kind of relationship, and it wasn't that the word or the culture who used the word created the relationship. The relationship already existed as a feature of human civilization. And because it's such an important part of human civilization, cultures have regulated it and protected it and privileged it, okay? But the start of a, a real marriage begins—I shouldn't say begins with, but it entails a public—characteristically, a public celebration and a public affirmation of intention. And the question that we've been getting quite a bit, apparently, is um, what? what's the big deal with a marriage license? Can't we just be married before God by saying private vows to each other? And uh, this has come up before. In fact, um, this was very popular in the 60s to dis- dismiss the marriage um, relationship, the formal marital relationship, as merely a piece of paper. We don't need the piece of paper. We're in love with each other. We'll stay with each other. And given the facts of divorce rates, um, if we want to leave each other, we can leave each other. So there is no difference in many people's minds to just making some kind of vow, I don't know what that vow entails, even if it's before God, privately, as opposed to publicly making the vow. All right? And so I want to offer my thoughts about this. Um, And in a certain sense, I guess I could agree that the piece of paper doesn't make a marriage. What the piece of—just like in a certain sense— I guess you could say a a contract isn't principally words written on the paper. What a contract is is an agreement, a formal agreement between two people about some, usually a business deal, that is formalized and secured by a piece of paper, which makes it, um, makes it, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, because I don't want to suggest that it, it creates the contract or the, the obligation or the agreement, but what it does is secures it. It secures it. And in the same way, when, when a couple gets married and does two things, one, they formalize that with the government by getting a marriage certificate, 
which then places them in a particular place in the cultural setting where the government now has now offers formal protections and privileges to that relationship for the purpose of securing its stability since it is the central relationship to civilization. Families are the building blocks of civilizations, and marriages create families. That's the way they start. Now, of course, that isn't always the way it works. But you and I know that when it doesn't work that way, it's a distortion of what is good. And, and I'm not even—I don't even have to moralize from the Bible here that when th- that institution that functions in societies, every society, whether they have a Bible or not, from essentially from the beginning of time, as long as we have records of people doing stuff, this is one of the things they did. And it wasn't just cohabiting. It wasn't just like, hey, you're sexy, I like you, and let's make a baby, or whatever. It was more, more formal. And there are all kinds of actual uh, ornate kind of rituals that different cultures have regarding this. What are they doing? They are making this a big thing. Why? Because it is a big thing. Again, leaving aside the theological elements just for a moment, the case can be made even without those, that a marriage relationship is something that our culture needs stable marriages for human flourishing. Humans have long gestation periods, nine months. That's a long time to carry a child. And then after the child's born, that's just—the <laughs> trouble just begins, right? There is a long period of time following that where that offspring is dependent upon the family for survival, not just the mother— She plays a very unique and precious role in the process, but Dad's in there, too, doing the things that characteristically mothers don't have time to do because they're caring for these children. They're out hunting, gathering, protecting, all of those kinds of things to provide for the family. Now, I I realize that's archetypical of kind of classical family, and we got different variations now, mom works, etc. But the point I'm making is, a point about human flourishing, and human beings being the kind of beings they are, require a certain kind of environment in order to grow up well and safely and to ultimately flourish. Okay? And that happens best when you have a stable family environment. I mean, you guys know, everybody's aware of friends now, gals who have live-in boyfriends, and that works great. She may, they may even have kids. When I say that works great, I'm, I'm being a little facetious here. I'm not championing it. Oh, that looks great. Oh, we might have a kid or two until the guy leaves. And when he's tired of getting what he wanted for very little responsibility, he moves on to someone else. And mom is there having to take care of the children, single moms. Okay, well, moms rise to the occasion. My wife was a single mom before we got married. And, but no, who would argue that's ideal? Who would argue that's best? Who would argue that's good? No, what's good and best 
obviously, is the nuclear family. And incidentally, that's been obvious for for millennia. It doesn't matter where you live. And it's only been recently that common sense on this issue is no longer common, because people have been bullied into ignoring common sense and ignoring what's obvious. I mean, this is not a hard issue. So what is the point now? You're a Christian. You want to say, I want to get married before God. What does that look like? Marriage before God is not a marriage unless it's a marriage before human beings, too. Now, you're going to say, where in the Bible does it say that? It doesn't say that. But very early in the biblical record, it became very clear that these relationships were secured not by a private commitment before God, but by a public commitment in which someone, in a certain sense, pays a price. They are standing before the public, and they are saying, here are the vows I'm making in front of you so that you can hold me accountable to these vows, and I'm also standing before God. No, it's not about a piece of paper. It's about securing, it's about a vow before God that is made with the gravity that is appropriate to the institution. Now, can atheists get married? Sure. They don't vow before God. I understand that. But that's because they don't understand. It doesn't mean it's not a marriage. Of course it's a marriage. In that circumstance, if it's a male and a female, there'll be a marriage. But they might not acknowledge that it's before God. All I'm saying is God is the one who made this institution, who constructed reality in this fashion. And it's been operating like that for millennium until just recently. In fact, one of the quips, which was not meant to be funny, was meant to be serious, from the Supreme Court justices themselves, one of the justices, was that maybe we—this was during Obergefell in 2015, when that case was being argued. Maybe it was 2014 when it was argued. It came out in June of 2015. What the judge said is, you know what, maybe we ought to move a little bit slower, because the concept of same-sex marriage is not as old as the cell phone. I remember this like seven years ago. So cell phones were not as old as they are now. But they're, they're recent in human history. And same-sex marriage, the concept is even more recent. It's foreign to civilization, because it's not a marriage in the sense that people have understood it to be, and protected it, and privileged it, and uh, regulated it, okay? Now, um, by the way, Jesus acknowledged that there's a difference between living together and marriage, and we read about it in John chapter 4. Because there he's talking at the woman, to the woman at the well who seems to be pretty obviously a woman of compromised character. Let's just put it that way. And when Jesus says, go get your husband, she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, that's right, you've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. Notice how Jesus himself made this distinction. A cohabiting relationship is not a marriage. Oh, there's a common law marriage category, 
in American jurisprudence, but that's just for the sake of the law, to provide protection, actually, to the wife especially, who might be taken advantage of by a man who lives with her for a long time and then leaves, and leaves maybe with children, etc. So there are legal—even in a common law marriage, notice that the the point of the common law marriage is to establish a de facto marriage with its corporate responsibilities, even when there's no piece of paper. Just goes to show how important that thing is from a cultural perspective. But from a Christian perspective, it's even more, because we understand that God ordained this. A man shall leave his father and a mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has joined together—these are Jesus' words—let no man separate, Matthew 19. So he adds that last sentence to the Genesis account in chapter 2 of Genesis about when the, the first marriage happened, and, and, and the nature of that thing, and that it is a God thing that's just been ordained. And I want to clarify something here, because it's sometimes easy to get this concept mixed up or to, to, to misunderstand the point I'm making. I'm not just saying that these are the rules that God established, and we got to play by God's rules. Now, that's certainly the case in many things. And if God says it, then He's in charge, right? But it's just not a matter of making arbitrary rules about something. He built the world in a certain way. If you have a diesel vehicle, you can't put regular gas in it. In fact, I think you can't even put the nozzle in the, in the car. It's blocked because the nozzle for diesel is different. People don't want you mixing the gas and the diesel up. Why? Because the diesel vehicle was not made to run on gasoline. It was made to run on diesel. Okay? It's the structure of that machine. And in a very real sense, God structured reality in a very particular way, that it worked in a certain way, and when it worked the way He intended, He called that good. In fact, when it comes to marriage, He called that very good. And so when, when, we, when we violate the, the order that God has established, we're not just breaking the rules as if they were arbitrary. We are putting gas in a diesel engine. That's what we're doing. We're working cross-purposes to reality. And, um, and so especially Christians who understand that ought to follow the pattern that not just Christian or Jewish believer people did under their period of time before God, but all people did, regardless of which God they happened to worship. They recognized the way reality was structured, the importance of a particular kind of union, a long-term monogamous heterosexual union. Now, sometimes they weren't monogamous. There was there's poly, poly, polygamy. <laughs> that caused all kinds of problems, though, and still does. But in general, a long-term monogamous um, heterosexual union, as a rule, as a as a, an, an, uh, produce the next generation <laughs> by nature, characteristically, and since it produced the next generation, and there's a long gestation period, mom's pregnant for nine months, and then kids are around for about twenty years used to be only about 15, 14, 13. Now it's twice that, or three times that, depending on the household. Can't get rid of them. 
that's another issue. Not that we want to get rid of kids in that sense, but we want them to grow up to be adults. Oh, people grow up so fast today's, these days. Kids grow up so fast. No, they don't. They don't grow up at all. What they get is adult privileges without having to take on adult responsibilities, and this corrupts them. So there's a reason for marriage the way it is. It's the way the reality is structured, the way God made things, and human beings are such that these kind of stable relationships promote human flourishing. And so, also then, therefore, um, we celebrate and protect and regulate as a community, and as, as Christians we have a, a, a deeper understanding about why the world's that way, and we bring honor to God when we stand before people and indeed before the state, and before God's minister, and we make a pledge before God to others to be married, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse, until death do us part. That's the pledge. I mean, it's not taken seriously by a lot of people nowadays, but it ought to be. And incidentally, when people are having a struggle in marriage— and, uh, and you know, they're looking, okay, what to do? Of course, they're going to be told, keep your vows. And what they think that only means is, got to stay married, because we've vowed until death do us part. Well, it's, you certainly did vow that, and you should keep that vow, but that wasn't the only thing in the vow. To have and to hold, to love and to cherish, in sickness and in health, in for richer or poorer. Those are all part of it. It, it helps us to reflect on how we are to comport ourselves when things get difficult. C.S. Lewis made the point. Marriage vows are not required when everything is going great, and as one marriage vow put it in the 60s, as long as you both shall dig it. It's when you don't dig it that you need the security of a vow. And it's only going to be secure—maybe that's too strong a language—it's most likely to be secure because the vow that you made is in public before God and man, and, and, and one of those human witnesses is going to be the state that issues a piece of paper. It's not just a piece of paper. It's a formal vow, a serious vow, a weighty vow that is made, a promise. And I've said before, how do you secure the future? You secure the future through a promise. You secure the past through forgiveness. You secure the future through a promise, and that's the purpose here. You want the promise to stick? You want to have the best chances for it to stick? You make it before people, before God and before others. Okay, let's take a break. Uh, Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason. More in a moment. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics 
gender issues in science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. If someone were to go back in time to 1946 and stop the RSV Bible translation team from using the word homosexuals in the Bible for the first time, how would that change the future? What would the Bible's teaching on marriage, homosexuality, and sexual ethics look like today? We'll find out my answer in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schliemann. Look for it on iTunes, Spotify, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. You know, I just had a uh, another couple of quick thoughts here about this piece of paper issue. Um, notice that Jacob had to wait seven years for Rachel. I, in other words, this was his—I um, don't know—you call it a dowry, but it's 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 what he had to sacrifice. It's that's his vow, so to speak, his public display. Of, of faithfulness and fortitude regarding this woman uh, would give Laban a tremendous uh, com- confidence that his daughter was going to be in, in good hands. Um, the other one was, it's just curious, isn't it, that when heterosexual couples were dismissing formal marriage as a mere piece of paper, that that gays were clamoring for that piece of paper. They were the ones ironically, who understood the significance of the piece of paper, as it were. It's, uh, in culture, it's a, a, a legitimization, it's a verification, it's a, it's a way, in their case, of publicly declaring that, that heterosexual unions and same-sex unions uh, are no different. But they were willing to get that—they desperately wanted that piece of paper where— Many heterosexual couples were issuing it. So just a thought there. All right, let's go to the phones. And first, number one up is Andy in Hawthorne. Is that Hawthorne, California, Andy? Yes, that's me. Hey. Hi. Um, so uh, you've been talking a lot about marriage lately, especially after your, your response to Alistair Biggs. Uh, uh, his, his advice about attending a trans uh, mm-hmm. transgender wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You last week had 
posted a or uh, issued a response to some follow-up questions. And I had a follow-up question about some of your uh, one of your responses to the follow-up question. Okay. Um, if I remember correctly, and you'll please forgive me if I'm misquoting you, I'm sure you'll let me know. Um, <laughs> you had you had said that a wedding between a transgender individual or um, or tw- two men, for example, is not a wedding, right. at least not by the Christian definition, and is therefore not a union that a Christian should, should celebrate by attending the ceremony of it. Um, now, during your your follow up last week. Uh, if I caught it correctly, you were saying though that you know while a Christian wedding, you know, or a Christians ha- who are seeking to get married have the scriptural command to not be unequally yoked, but non-believers or members of another faith, for instance, a Hindu and a Muslim, do not have that same scriptural uh, command to remi- to avoid being unequally yoked. Correct. So for that reason, a Christian would not have reason to object to a wedding, for example, between a Hindu and a Muslim. Not on moral grounds, correct. Not on moral grounds, sure. Um, but, okay, so here's my question. Um, unions between two non-believers also would not qualify as a marriage by the Christian definition, correct? Because Christianity has—let's say now we're not talking about a Hindu and a Muslim, let's say we're talking about atheists. Um, Christianity has always recognized a marriage as being, at least in part, a divine union. You, you and During your monologue, you— uh, I you mentioned, mentioned that. That correct. Jesus, uh, yeah, made the comment. But what what you just offered, the Christian view, even though I mentioned that, that doesn't mean that's the Christian view. And this is the second time you use that by Christian definition. Okay. I define uh, my understanding of marriage comes from the the uh, the created order that Jesus referred to from the beginning. Uh, when he in Matthew nineteen, he's talking about marriage and or I should say divorce and remarriage. And he refers back to the created order, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. So when a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife, the two become one flesh. That is a marriage, okay? It is also the case that that institution is one that God himself has ordained. So we could say that given that ordination by God, this is something that God has joined together. And so, therefore, God does not intend people to get divorced because there's a destructive element to to divorce, given the structure of reality. It's the language I've been using, all right? So, though we have, Christians have an understanding of the divine element in there, and and it's going to be—that divine element is is an element of marriage per se— which Jesus describes as the man and wife leaving and joining and becoming one flesh. Um, and he just adds, the this is something God has joined together, so therefore it's meant to be permanent. Let no man separate, meant to be permanent. That is a further theological understanding that Christians have. But it is also, a since this is the understanding of what marriage is, even when atheists do it, the same thing is going on, even if they don't acknowledge it. It's still a man leaving and cleaving and becoming one flesh with his wife. So it still is, even so, even they don't they don't believe in God, it still is a bona fide marriage. So it's yeah. not a Christian definition, it's a definition, it's Jesus' definition, which Christians use because he's describing the way 
God made the world, even for non-believers. Yeah. Okay. So I guess yeah. I guess that makes sense. So what what I would was looking for was a specific distinction in your mind between these two classes of non-Christian wedding ceremonies. Um, one, for example, being a gay or transgender wedding, and the other being between just two heterosexual non-believers. And your answer, it sounds like, would be that one, while not recognizing the divine source or the divine provenance of this wedding ceremony is still following the general model as laid out or yeah. as as intended by God. Right? That's right. And that's why people like in, you know, cavemen or whatever, you can go back as far as you want. They still did this kind of thing. It, it, it's as cultures developed, this became a pattern uh, because of the importance of that, this this formalizing of this relationship. But it was always male-female. It's always Male, female, because that's the nature of the thing, the way God made it. Made it. Um, the theological element may not be consciously in people's mind, or might even be rejected. But it, it doesn't make it not a marriage. The marriage is between the man and the woman, and therefore, when it's between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman, it's not a marriage at all. It's something else. And when it's posturing as a marriage, it's a corruption of what God purposed. And that's why celebrating the corruption is not appropriate for a Christian. Okay, uh, and I totally understand that. I okay, just, good. Uh, while you were saying that, I have I had a follow up question. Okay, <laughs> it just popped into my mind. Hopefully, you'll allow me. Um, so, you, you, so we, we're 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 assuming um, then that attending a wedding ceremony is a celebration of that marriage, and that that is a perfectly reasonable assumption. I'm just curious, how would you respond to somebody saying, you know, it's no more a celebration of the marriage than, say, shopping at Target or some other store that uh, supports a, you know, an agenda that you as a believer do not? I, I, I don't even know. I would look at the person quizzically, and I'd be thinking in my mind, you're an idiot. <laughs> but I wouldn't say that, because that would be unkind. What possible parallel could there be between these two, except for that in both cases you're walking through a door into another place? A, a marriage, a wedding is a place where two people are being joined together, and you are there to rejoice with them because of the event. And you give gifts you applaud, you sometimes shed a tear or two because you're deeply moved at the significance of the event. This is the beginning of a new family, and pretty soon there'll be little munchkins running around and and cookie crunchers, and oh, won't it be wonderful? It's all part of the package. Nobody thinks anything like that when they walk into Target. They're buying a product. And it doesn't matter what the people pushing the buttons on the machine or counting the money upstairs or running the show believe about anything. You're not participating in their beliefs when you buy their uh, commodities there over Target. Now, if you wanted to say, I don't like what Target is doing, and I'm going to tell you I don't like it by not spending money here, fine. Yeah, That's your Vote prerogative. Your but I don't think a person who does spend money there is participating in their in their corrupted uh, you know understanding about sexuality. 
which I think mm -hmm. is that's exactly what that is. It's a it's like apples and oranges. It's I can't even apples and oranges are both fruits. That's even too close of a uh, comparison. These are these are universes apart. Sure, yeah, no, I, I understand that. Uh, the The parallel that was in my mind as I was posing this was um, that you know I'm sure somebody has and will argue that by attending a ceremony, you are supporting, you are showing your love for that person in your life because you know we are called to to love on and minister to unbelievers uh no matter their their variety of sin as it were yeah so we should so this is going to be you know simply another way to to show our love for that person without okay necessarily the, you know celebrating the yeah yeah i i think that's that's specious and the th the thing is you 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 cannot i'm trying to think of an illustration that's not gross but it, the, the, you, there are some things you can participate in, and it is a mere sh expression of love. There are other things that you show love by participating in something that is that itself is a celebration of that thing you're participating in. And, and, and the thing you're participating in is in a same sex. You're celebrating is a same sex wedding. Alan Schleeman on our team. You know we talk about this a lot. Try to work out the finer points, and we've recently gone over some of these issues, these details. He's actually gone to two same sex weddings for the reasons that people have given is justifiable. First, both times he regretted it. Now he won't do it at all. And uh, and and it, it did not seem to have the slightest. Um, it, uh, impact on improving the relationship, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, who? I mean, most a lot of times you don't even remember who went to your wedding. You know, you. I mean, you, you. You know who's standing there with you, but there are lots of people in and out. Whatever, and it's a blur. Uh, but not only that, he said, and there we were sitting, and people are in a in a, a, a gay wedding, a homosexual wedding, two guys, and people are ding 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 ding. Right, through classes. What's that for? Mm -hmm. That's everybody cheering on the bride and the, I should say, in this case, the groom and the groom to kiss. And then they kiss. Oh. And he's got to sit through. And this is, this is what this event involves. It's all a celebration. All the dances and all of this, the receiving line, congratulations, everything. How could you attend this thing and say you're not participating in the celebration? You're just showing love. I, I, that's why I say it's specious. Yeah. A person who says that is fooling themselves. I think that they are showing love, but they are not. But it's, in other words, their gesture is motivated by showing love, by a desire to show love. But one could even question whether it is, in fact, a demonstration of genuine love at all. Because Paul says, love does not, what's the word? Rejoice. Rejoice in in unrighteousness. So, is a same-sex wedding reflect unrighteousness? Yes. When you go to a same-sex wedding, what's going on there? People are rejoicing. Well, if people are rejoicing, and, and that's the nature of the thing that you're going to, then you are not actually loving the person there. Mm -hmm. Or persons. So, there yeah. you have it. 
Fair enough. Yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for that. I'm uh, still work. All right. <laughs> no, I'm glad to make to work one... out my own consistent ethic in this regard. Yes. Okay. And I'm glad to be a part of that. Thanks for your call, Andy. No problem. Thanks, Greg. Okay. Bye bye now. Hey, let's go to a quick break here, and then we'll come back again with more of your calls on Standard Reason. Have you seen our brand new website? Stop by str.org and enjoy a fresh, clean layout with all the same great content. The new Standard Reason website was designed with you in mind. It has an easier-than-ever navigation and a crisp, simple layout so you can find all the sound analysis and careful commentary that you've come to expect from us. Browse new features that make finding your favorite resources easier than ever. As always, it's our goal to equip you, our fellow Christians, with the confidence, clear thinking, and courage you need for every encounter you have as a Christian ambassador. Our new website is just one way we're fulfilling that goal, allowing you to access the resources you need in a new and improved way. So visit str.org and keep coming back to discover new podcasts, articles, and videos each and every day. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. And let's see, who do we go to this time? We've got Coconut Creek, Florida, and Lewis. Coconut Creek, Florida. That sounds exotic, Lewis. Yeah, how's it going, Greg? Oh, it's going okay. Where is Coconut Creek? Coconut Creek uh, is more South Florida area. I uh, guess another city that's more common would be Fort Lauderdale. Oh, okay. South Southeast. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, yeah. Sounds great. Mm-hmm. Okay, Lewis, what's on your mind? Yeah, so uh, thanks for, for taking my call. Um, so sure. I, I have two questions. Hopefully you can take the second one. But the uh, first question, uh, I, I'm recently doing a, a study with Reasonable Faith. I'm reading the book with Will and Lane Craig. Um, and I have a study guide that I'm running through and possibly opening up a Reasonable Faith chapter. Uh, so one of the questions came across to me, and I just wondered how I can answer this in a uh, one-to-one, uh, you know, person, and it says, how would you respond to someone who says, I don't believe in God, but my life is meaningful? And of course, you know, I can answer that with books, a uh, book-style answer, but I wanted to see what's a good uh, approach well, to a person. Well, okay, so I would ask questions here, all right? I, I don't mm-hmm. think any 
a thoughtful Christian apologist uh, who understands the problem here would ever say that a non-Christian cannot lead a meaningful life. Okay? Um, But the problem is in the word meaningful. So I'd want to ask them a question. What do you mean it's meaningful? Well, I, I, I do things that I like to do. The things that I do bring me satisfaction. They give me fulfillment. I think I'm doing good in the world. Okay? <clears throat> and I would say, I could say, all right, I understand you, but that's the same thing an SS officer would say. An SS being uh, basically a stormtrooper of the Nazis who were especially brutal in, in advancing the Aryan race and in, um, in, in executing Jews. Their lives were meaningful to them. They were doing something that was good. And in fact, even after the war was over, quite a number of these people that were on trial at the Nuremberg trials would not even acknowledge that what they did was wrong. They thought it was noble. They still, you know, stuck to their guns, as it were, even though they lost the war. They were convinced that what they were doing was noble. <clears throat> okay, now the question that I'm going to ask is, to the person who says, well, the, when he says, my life is meaningful, I ask what? And they were going to would give their characterization. Chances are pretty good that that same characterization is going to fit a whole bunch of other people that it seems to moral common sense led morally grotesque lives. Mm -hmm. Now, the question is going to be, what's the difference? And the correct answer for the atheist is, there is no difference. It's just they like something that I didn't like. But we both did what was meaningful to us, and that's all you can say. And in fact, that's all they can say, if they are being consistent with their view. So I'm going to first ask a question about their definition of meaningful— and then I'm going to ask a question. Then I'm going to think, given how they characterize it, I'm going to think of, of severe counterexamples where their same definition would apply to people who lived morally grotesque lives. And then I'm going to ask them about that. So on your view, then, this would be justifiable what they did, because they were living meaningful lives, too. Different meaning than you had. I get that. Mm-hmm but just as meaningful to them in the ways that your life is meaningful to you. How do you think about that? That's what I would ask. Right. And and and, and like you mentioned, that's something you can actually bring up to them. Well, you know, if you hold your, your view consistent as an atheist, then your your meaning will still be, I guess, valid to you, even though Adolf Hitler, you know, killed all these people. Would it, it would be yes, it would be valid to them, no question. But w- the point I'm making, it's no different. You just happen to choose what appear to be noble-sounding goals for your meaningful life. But on your view, there's no difference between Hitler and Mother Teresa. Right. If they they were both making the best of their own lives according to their own views, how you can't say Mother Teresa's view, views were better. Hitler's were worse. All you could say is they're different because there's no standard by which you can measure them that doesn't entail a moral judgment that an atheist has no appropriate um, right to. 
He can't just smuggle this, he can't just borrow this morality from a Christian worldview when it's not part of his worldview. His worldview is do your own thing, and that's, a, that's not morality, that's just a rational outworking of, of a view that holds there is no ultimate meaning in the world. No ultimate meaning. There is only meaning that you can give it. But if you give it your meaning, then the next guy is just as free to give it his meaning, whatever that happens to be. And that could be the SS stormtrooper compared to Mother Teresa and the nuns, the w- Mothers of Mercy or whatever the group was that she was a part of. And this is the stickler. Your view—I'm speaking now to the atheist—your view, atheist, um, allows for all of this stuff. All of this—there uh, is no distinction. You are—your meaningfulness is simply tied to yourself, your self-interest in yourself— uh, desires. For Christians or, or, or noble theists, their, self, they, their, their interests are tied to an other, one greater than them. And so they seek to do the greatest good, which means not to do what they want, selfishly, but rather to do what to do the good, the objective good, the noble, the truly noble thing. And not just pursue whatever. So I want to lay that out for them, okay? So they okay. can see the difference. And, and just you know, you're t- this is gardening. It may not convince them. Mm-hmm. I know Francis Schaeffer had a discussion like this with someone once. It's in one of his books, and he mm-hmm. was having a discussion, and, and the person was making a claim along this line, and um, and Schaeffer took a pot of boiling water and he held it above the guy's head, and and. Um, and the guy said, what are you doing? He said, well, on your view, there's no difference, moral difference for me pouring it on your head or not pouring it on your head. Something to that effect. Right. And he was trying to—this is called taking the roof off—and he was trying to let the person see the true consequences of the view that he had if he followed it out to its natural conclusion. And it was a good move, yeah. you know, but yeah. daring. Yeah. That's— no, I love that, and I think that's like the <clears throat> the the point. I guess that would have been the next step. How do I show that in a way like Schaefer was going to pour the boiling water over him, and he realized, well, that seems more of irrational, you know, selfish reasons, and not doing unto others well, what you should do. So, well, if if it's meaningful to to to. Francis Schaefer to do it, then why shouldn't he? That's his. That's how he's getting his meaning from hurting other people. That's meaningful to him, and that's you're playing their rules against them, and hopefully it's going to show yeah. them how ridiculous their view is. Okay, but you had another question. We just got about two and a half minutes, yeah. so I wanted to get to that quickly. Okay, yeah. So, uh, I, well, real quick, I, I came to Saving Faith through uh, you know apologetics a few years ago. Um, and uh, watching, you know, you, Sean McDowell, Willingly, and Craig, and uh, recently at our church, uh, we just started a satellite church about a year ago. I worked there as a uh, an admin and director. Um, I approached a pa- one of our pastors about getting involved with apologetics, uh-huh. um, but he mentioned most don't come through apologetics. Uh, so I know that really can't be true, true, only because I know I was one who came through it by apologetics. So how how would I be able to humbly approach my pastor uh, into be able to maybe get engaged with the church? Um, 
Okay, a couple of things here. Most don't come through apologetics. That's probably true. But if people don't use apologetics, then most aren't going to come through apologetics, you know? It's like a guy who fishes with one lure all the time. And then he says, if he's a fisherman, right? And he's fishing. He said, man, every bass that I've caught in the last 10 years has been on this lure. Well, that's because it's the only lure you ever use, you know? And if he says most people don't come through apologetics, but people aren't exposed to apologetics, then that's going to be true by default. It may be that if more people used apologetics, then more people would come to Christ through apologetics, because Jesus and the apostles used them frequently. And I can give you lots of examples of that. I'm just short on time. I got half a se- half a minute to go. Okay. Here's the other thing. Maybe a lot of people don't get one through apologetics, but a whole lot of Christians get lost because of a lack of apologetics. They get torn out of the body of Christ because they face challenges that they don't know how to deal with, and they have questions that people pose to them they don't know how to answer. Then these become their own questions. They deconstruct, and then they deconvert, all for the lack of apologetics. Okay, uh, Lewis, thank you for the chat. Coconut Creek, Florida. It's hot down there. Probably not so much right now. But nice chatting with you. Thank you for the call. And that's it for this show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, all right? Bye-bye now.